Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Susan Carol Hauser. A lover of the prairies and the pines, Susan Hauser found much inspiration in observing and sharing nature. A passionate teacher, she believed in creating safe creative spaces for witnessing, exploration, and growth. A longtime mentor, she worked tirelessly for the rights of writers to receive fair compensation and representation of their creative property. Sadly, Susan Hauser died unexpectedly on July 6th, 2015. This interview was recorded at the AWP Annual Writers Conference in April of 2015. Susan's words and legacy live on in the writing and teachings of her students. I am honored to have called her friend and mentor for the last 15 years, and her wisdom is a gift to the world. Susan, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm delighted. In the midst of 12,000 writers at the AWP conference, it's really nice to get away to a corner for a minute. It is. And uh, as you mentioned, we are recording this live at AWP here in Minneapolis. And Susan, I'm just so grateful you said yes. We've known each other for about 15 years. You were my undergraduate writing mentor at Bemidji State, and it's really great to come back and reconnect with you after having graduated almost 10 years ago and to be talking about writing with you. I am so surprised it was 10 years ago. <laughs> so I'm, am I'm I. trying to do some math. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and it must have been. I retired five years ago. So Yeah. So you teach, you taught writing at the university level. You also yes. teach workshops, and you're a writer. Um, and I want to talk about all of those things. But okay. first, I'd love to know, what is writing to you? Writing to me, and that's a very interesting way to put the question. And I've thought about it many times over the years. People say, I have to write. And I didn't like saying that for a long time. I thought, well, no, you know, I really don't have to. But I just do. It's like part of the fabric of my life. I didn't start till I was like 26. But it very quickly became the lens through which I experienced life and saw the world. And it's, that's been a struggle sometimes. When my father was dying, I was with him for two weeks, and he hadn't died yet. And I started writing his eulogy while I was sitting next to him. And I thought, boy, this has to be like sick. This can't be... A, the right thing to be doing. He's still breathing next to me. He wasn't conscious. But and then I thought, you know, it's, it's because that's how I see, how I experience life is through the written word. And uh, I came to feel all right about it. But it's very, um, it's very strange. I took a trip with my husband some time ago on down the Mississippi River. And I realized that I couldn't see the river except as a writer, that it framed my experience and kind of was the fabric of my experience and I know I know I lose something from that it's like the photographer who can only see things through this the frame of the lens mm. and so it has limitations but I've become pretty comfortable with it it yeah. it uh, I like my life that way mm. and you uh, talk about your journey down the Mississippi River which is uh, just one of your many books and 
I am reminded because we lived for so long in a place that was right at the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Yes. And that sense of place that comes from living somewhere like that, be it on a river or the ocean or in the mountains, I think as writers we do develop a sense of place in our work. But in yours, it comes out not just in your nonfiction, but also in your poetry. And I'd love to know if you had a sense of place before you moved there or if that became part of how you experienced the work as a writer. I grew up in Richfield, Minnesota, when it was a very early suburb, and there was a lake down the road from us called Wood Lake, which is still there, but it's, it's pretty much swamp now, the whole lake. And the images from that lake, most of my memories from childhood are connected to images. They're in my head, someone says, oh, you grew up in Richfield, and I see the big old oak trees in the yard, or mm. I see Wood Lake. Um, for some reason, my brain works that way. I, I work in images. When I started writing, I, the writing comes from images, not from ideas. Mm -hmm. So it will be seeing something. Like I saw, I was driving into town near Bemidji, and a man was coming across a field with an armload of pussy willows. And he had to climb over a barbed wire mm -hmm. fence to get back to his car. And I thought, wow, you know, that's just amazing. And that's the note I made was the man with the pussy willows, you know. Mm -hmm. And sometime later that became the poem. But all I have to do when I make a note for a poem is that image. I know the ideas and everything else are, are already in there. And maybe my work as a poet is to be accurate with the image and to reveal through that the ideas and values that are held in that image. So wherever I am, I'm writing about the images that are there. Mm -hmm. The North Woods and Minnesota images I have a lot of experience with. So um, I discovered how different it was when I went to visit my father in Florida and I found that we went down by the ocean and I, I couldn't write about it. I had big waves, you know, that's mm -hmm. all I, I couldn't get it. I didn't have the language for writing about that land. And I'm sure I would acquire it if I stayed there. Mm -hmm. So um, the Northwoods imagery is just from habit more than anything, but yeah. it is definitely, my, my writing is grounded in the imagery. And um, my, even my nonfiction, my general nonfiction books are about northern Minnesota, mm -hmm. about wild rice and ticks and maple <laughs> sugaring. Um, maple, yeah, I said that, maple sugaring, wild rice, ticks, I'm missing one, poison, poison ivy. ivy. Yes. So, um, but those come out of familiarity with the things themselves, mm -hmm. things we know through our senses, not from ideas. I don't yeah. work very well from ideas. And you mentioned writing poetry and also writing general nonfiction. And yes. you also write memoir and essay. Yes. And you taught creative nonfiction for many years at Bemidji State. Yes. And you also have a craft book about it mm -hmm. called You Can Write a Memoir. And I'm wondering about how that book came to be and if it is directly related to your time in the classroom or if you had those ideas and then decided to write a book about them. Uh, that was one of those magic moments for a writer. An editor actually called me from Writer's Digest Press. I had been uh, working with him on another manuscript, which they ended up not publishing. He said, we need a book on how to write a memoir. Can you do that? And I said, I teach it all the time. I certainly can do it. So um, that book is pretty much directly what I teach in the, in the nonfiction classroom. And it approaches it... Um, 
from image, really. Yeah. Um, and so it comes out of the classroom, and I had to um, kind of organize it because the classroom is so spontaneous. You're answering questions of the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's very orderly in a way that the classroom is not yeah. orderly. But um, it was fun to write it because I think, well, how do I do that? Okay. Mm -hmm. I was sort of transcribing the teaching, which yeah. was very interesting to do. And that book came out, well, I know it had to have come out at least 10 years ago. I think it was around 2000. Yeah, that sounds yeah. about right. I, I remember, I have a copy on my shelf from okay. when it was published. And one of the things that I really gained from being your student and being in the classroom with you was learning how to workshop writing. You teach it in a way that is very different from the way many writers teach workshopping and, and critique group. It's, and, and that's really, it's really about um, going deep with the work and looking beyond these surface positive or negative critique, but really actually sitting with the work and, and having conversations around it. And I'd love to know more about how you developed that style of teaching. It was painful to develop it. <laughs> I didn't have teaching experience before I started. I'd had a little bit of college writing, but then I'm all of a sudden teaching in the BFA with creative writing students who are doing, they love writing and like the college writing where you're, you know, fighting against the, the resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I had to figure out what I wanted from my own writing, what, what was hard for me. And the hardest thing for me is reading what I've written. Mm -hmm. as though I had never read it before. It's very hard for everyone to do that. Um, so I ended up gradually working the classes, so that is what we did. We didn't do critiquing in a general way right. at all, like what, um, nothing about what's wrong with this, what's right with this. I absolutely forbade that. And I'm sure you will remember we read work out loud. Yes. We didn't, you did not have copies in front of you. Mm -hmm. Only the reader had the copy. And we, I really taught how to listen. You did. And it taught the writer how to listen as well. So we would read a piece, the writer would read it out loud, and I would say, what do you, to the rest of them, what do you remember? Do you remember in a dead silence? Because you can't remember anything at that first mm -hmm. moment. I said, were there any colors? Were there, you know, was there landscape? Were there numbers? So we'd start working like that. Yes, there was red. In fact, there was red three times, and maybe there was some purple. And so it's just bringing out for the writer what people are taking away from this, mostly in images. And then we would talk about those colors, like our, for instance, the numbers. Says, well, there are a lot of numbers in here. Wow, yeah, there really are. Then we'd read it out loud again. Sometimes we'd read a piece three, four, five times mm -hmm. in the talking about it. Well, what do numbers mean to us? numbers quantify, you know, we would talk like that. What does the color red mean to us? Right. Red is passion, red is danger, fire, it's all these things. And the writer is starting to go, wow, I, I really didn't mean to write about mm, passion, did I really do that? Mm -hmm. And so gradually the writers learned to, they would hear what other people were taking away. Um, and then they began to discover what they had written. Mm -hmm. and. I was, that's what I taught. You know, it's funny. I, I often tell people that you are the reason I am the writer I am. Mm. And I, I really believe that it is directly out of my experience in your classroom because you talk about 
learning what you're writing and really paying yeah. attention to that. And that stuck with me. Um, I had been a writer for a long time, long time. before I came yes. into your classroom. Um, but when I, when I came in, I, I really learned how to write. And, and I will be forever grateful for well, that. Thank you. Um, it, it really, but it's really that idea. One of the things that I remember from your classroom and, and you have talked about in other contexts is the, this idea of an image vocabulary and, and yes. storing images. And, and you reference, you know, making a note of an image before you go back and then write the poem or write the essay. And, yes. and I think that's a, a tool that is so useful when we are particularly out and about, right? You know, we live yeah. these busy lives, and but yes. we are constantly seeing things and yes. constantly experiencing and constantly taking in. And I think that that's a, a tool that we can use to, to remember. And whether it's we know we want to work on something and we go back to our image vocabulary and our image dictionary or we're stuck and we don't really know what to write, we can yeah. have that and remember it. Yeah. It also, when you have that image, I mean, sometimes it would be months before I would write the poem or start the essay, and I kept a basket on my desk, and I just dropped those notes in there, and uh, the, this is a wonderful cliche, and they're cliches because they're true. <laughs> so an image, a picture is worth 10,000 words. Mm -hmm. All the words are in there. It's a little basket, right? and I would pick up a note and think, why did I write that down? Why did I write man with pussy willows climbing over barbed wire fence? Um, and then I'd start writing about that, drawing it, just very descriptive. And as I did that, the poem emerged, probably usually the one that I was thinking of at first. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I had no idea, except the image was so en enticing that yeah. I, that's why I wrote it. So it's a basket that you can keep things in. <laughs> And it's such sensory memory that it mm -hmm. makes it much easier, I think. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about your book, You Can Write a Memoir, which I, I mentioned came out at least 10 years ago, maybe 15. Yes. But it really came out before sort of the explosion of memoir. But I think it's one of the things I love about that book and, um, and about learning writing from you is that um, writing memoir is so powerful and so important, but... You don't have to tell your entire life story at once. That's right. And you teach and you talk a lot about writing about specific points in your life. You mentioned the trip down the Mississippi. Yes. And that experience, that's, that's a book about one experience. And I'd love to know um, your experience about writing about a specific time and, and what the importance of that is for you and, and being able to be so specific. I think, uh, I think memoir is about um, periods of time. It's not an autobiography, which is like a biography beginning to the present moment or the end, whichever, <laughs> whichever yeah. has happened. Um, and writing about the, um, the smaller part of time, you know, that's kind of, we, we live in these smaller parts of time. So it, it keeps moving along, but, but our lives are lived in the moment. And, and so... You don't have to deal with that whole arc of things. Mm -hmm. And again, for me, it's all about the images in that time. I've got a, my book on maple sugaring is mostly, it's a memoir about maple sugaring and it's got recipes and how to sugar and all that. But it's, it's about that 
period of time and that very specific place out in the sugar bush. And I just work with the images and let the ideas come out of them. Um, I don't know, for me it's kind of the only way to write, especially that kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, because I'm just so reliant on the image. Uh, I am a thinker, <laughs> but I don't, ideas are not um, prompts for me. They don't start me writing. An idea doesn't excite me in the same way an image does. So I, I don't know if that, I don't think that quite got to what you no, were looking it's, for. it's good. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious, what's the best advice you've ever received? As a, as a writer or? As yes, a writer as or a in life? person? Okay. Let's see. Wow, I'm drawing a complete and <laughs> absolute blank. Maybe I've never received any good advice. I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> I'm sure I have received some good advice. Um, the advice I like to give to people is trust yourself. Mm. And I think I might have been told that over time. Um, we deceive ourselves a lot, mm -hmm. but in a, I think it's good to trust ourselves. It's good to trust in writing. Um, well, I have students, when we're starting like a research project or something, write down three things and then make lists underneath them. And the longest list is probably the mm -hmm. one you want to write about. However, if you have a short list and you keep going back to that, and, oh, that one, but you think that's not important enough or you don't have enough stuff, but you keep going back to it, mm -hmm. that's the one you should do. You need to trust your instinct, even if it seems like a trivial topic or inadequate in some way, you don't have enough, trust your instinct to go back to that topic. Mm -hmm. I grew, I was born on Christmas Eve, mm. and uh, I was told that this was special, that this made me special. And my mother's friends, her bridge friends, made a thing of it. I remember all my life, they would come to me, we were always, always very exciting when her bridge club was at our house. It was wonderful women who adored us, there were five children in the family. But these women would lean down to me and say, you're special, you know. And I think that changed my life. I think they made a difference to me. And it, it's not quite advice, but it's something that carried me along even when I doubted it. Those beautiful women leaning down to me, you're special, you know, still makes me kind of tear up. It's like, wow, what more could a child ask for than that kind of love and appreciation? So I think that's been very important to me as advice might be. You mentioned earlier that you have some general nonfiction books, books about yes. ticks and and <laughs> the sugar bush and and maybe, and wild rice are are probably fall into that category, although yes. less the sugar bush. Um, what was it like to write sort of general nonfiction books about Lyme disease and poison yeah. ivy? How was that process for you? The poison ivy book was the first nonfiction book general nonfiction book that I wrote. And I had been writing some very difficult grief poems and grief things, and I wrote a little radio play that was very intense about grief. And uh, then I, I started freelancing, and I got the contract to do the Poison Ivy book, and it was such a relief 
to not have to plumb the depths of my soul and my experiences. This was information, and I could make it interesting and make it fun and make it serious and important. Um, but it was so easy after the others. It was a great relief. And when I get done with something like the Poison Ivy book, I'm also relieved to go back to something that I grapple with in a completely different way. <clears throat> Masses of information are hard to deal with, but it's a mental game. Mm-hmm. It's not an emotional game. So that's the real difference for me between those two kinds of writing. Mm-hmm. And they do blend sometimes, like in the sugaring book, but um, mostly they're very discreet. I'm writing one or I'm writing the other. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to read six poems. If you hear uh, strange noises in the background, it is my beagle Alice snoring. So um, here we go. This is called Anniversary. The leaves are going gold, granting the seasonal promise of return, a kind of permanence, like breathing, inhale, predicting exhale, exhale, yielding to in, like the heart's tick-tock, diastole and systole, each beat, a prediction, a confirmation, like waking and sleeping and waking again, or going out the door and coming back in. This is called the piebald deer, and a, a piebald deer is an anomaly in the woods. It's all mottled. They're uh, sometimes not well. They're very delicate and, and very ephemeral. People who see them uh, say it's a very spiritual experience to see them. Um, however, <laughs> sometimes people like to shoot them because then they've got a very good trophy. Um, so here's the piebald deer. First, I must tell you, the deer was small, hardly bigger than a large dog. It was delicate of limb, slightly built. Small, delicate, slight. Maybe its white coat dappled here and there with brown. The way it moved like sunlight through the woods made it look vulnerable. Does it matter? Should a pretty deer be held more precious than one that is mundane, brown, If you are going to kill an animal, why not this one? This is Chickadee Cathedral. It was one of my favorite uh, moments in the woods when I lived in northern Minnesota. Chickadee Cathedral. Here in northern Minnesota, winter leaves reluctantly, as though summer were the intruder, the slow breathing of snow silenced by all that birthing and growing. You cannot hear a twig snap half a mile away the way you can when air is frozen. Life seems simpler than the carcass of a deer disperses into the woods, a leg bone here, the skull there, the ragged leavings of hide everywhere. The rib cage holds intact longer than the rest, its organs extracted by something still alive, its bones bleached nearly as white as snow. They appear to be utterly clean, bereft even of sinew, yet chickadees enter through the staves, find orts to glean. They carry their feathered bodies into and out of the heart's cathedral, all the while singing their bell song. And another forest poem, another forest poem. I spent a lot of time the last couple of years up north uh, hiking in the woods. In the forest, on the path today, you stopped 
at a deep scent rising from the ground. Something, something wild marking its territory, you said, a bear or a timber wolf. It smelled like smoke to me, a campfire put out, or wood just taking to flame. I breathed it in, almost a sweetness to it, I thought, but I did not say so. You moved ahead. I lingered, filling my lungs as one might fill a thermos or a water jug, wanting to carry it with me. The way it opened my senses, closed my eyes, held me there, scuffing my feet in the wet, blackened earth. And we move inside. If you were here, I would take a nap with you in the winter sun that is slanting now through the west window. We would lie on my bed the way we do, and the sunlight would lie warm upon us in spite of the cold it has traveled through to get here. The blue sky would wink in that familiar way, and we would close our eyes, and our breathing would quiet, and we would dream the way we do while the day finished itself and night came on, if you were here and I were taking a nap with you. And the final poem from December 2014 when I was packing to leave the land I had lived on for almost 40 years. I wish it were 25 below this morning, the air on fire with the cold. On a day like that when I was younger, I would put on my skis, glide away from the house, Follow the squared sides of the field, south, west, north, east to home. My breath condensed and froze on my eyebrows. My cheeks crackled as though electric. Less than halfway out, I would have loosened the scarf around my neck, the working of my heart warming even my toes, sweat freezing on my brow. Outside this morning, it is warm for December, high 20s. A pileated woodpecker works at the suet, and the chickadees scavenge the hulls of sunflower seeds on the platform feeder, looking for one more kernel of fuel. They do not heed the frozen bay beyond, a white disk, a wafer of ice and snow, nor do they apprehend in any way the packed boxes behind me. Thirty-five years of life on this land, divided into cartons, sealed with tape, the past containered the present unfolding, the future gliding away, even as I approach. Thank you so much for listening. I want to talk a little bit about the National Writers Union okay. and the importance of writers having and belonging to a union. You yourself are a longtime member of the National Writers Union, and you're actually here representing NWU at AWP. And I'd love to know how you got involved with the union and what it means for you and what it means for writers. I lived near Bemidji at the time. It was about 25 or 30 years ago that I joined, actually. And I was starting to freelance write. I didn't know anything about contracts, writers' issues. I knew writers up in the Bemidji area, but we didn't talk about contracts. Mm -hmm. And so I learned about the National Writers Union and I joined. And through the newsletters and occasional events that I was able to get to, uh, I learned about contracts and intellectual property rights. It's so important. Poets think they don't need to know it. They do. They have to know. 
about this. Uh, it's, it is your property, and it's important to think about it that way when it comes to publishing. You don't want to think about it when you're writing the poem. That's fine. But if you're releasing the poem to a magazine to publish, you should know what you are releasing, and uh, it needs to be articulated. So most small presses, um, they, they give you, they take one-time rights, they publish it once, rights revert to authors, is in the middle, in front of most of those books. Um, but I found a community of writers, even though I was living up in the woods, I belonged to this larger community and learned about the issues that are important to writers. So I've, I've loved being part of it, and I'm now a contract advisor for the National Writers Union. They have a training that I went through, and now when people come, and members come to the union, they write to us and say, I've got this problem, I will get assigned some of those cases, and I will help them. And I confer with my mentor and my other colleagues in that division about these issues of copyright and grievance. Sometimes they're taking using more rights than you sold them. Sometimes they don't pay you. There are all kinds of issues that are very important. But I think it's important as a writer to be part of a writing community, whether it's a writing group where you actually work on the writing itself or a larger issue. Uh, I had a little group in Bemidji. We called ourselves a Kindle group. We learned, we got together because we were all trying to publish on Kindle and we got together to talk about how we did that and we ended up talking about promotion and contracts, and uh, we'd bring resources to each other. It was one of the most wonderful writing mm. groups I ever belonged to because uh, it, it was just fun to talk to someone who cared about those things, and we, we exchanged a lot of information. It was yeah. very important to me. Um, a writer will come to me and say, I've, I've got a book, you know, and I'd like to get it published, and they're thinking, Random House, maybe. You know? mm -hmm. So my metaphor, my analogy is, uh, well, if you're a pretty good tennis player, you do pretty well in your neighborhood, you don't say, well, you know, I think I'd like to go play at Wimbledon. <laughs> you, you start working up through the ranks. Right. You start playing regionally. Then you might play for the state. You subscribe to the magazines. You talk to people. You know what the issues are. Mm -hmm. And you try to get yourself into that arena. So as writers, you need to subscribe to Poets and Writers, you need to take classes, yeah. join the Writers' Union, join the Authors' Guild, find your community and be engaged mm -hmm. in, in that field. Very important to, to be engaged in the broader aspects of the field. Absolutely. And I think <coughs> it's not just about, um, you know, having a writing community is so important, not just to share our work, but also to have these really meaningful conversations. Yes. Because it's often the case, I find, that I don't know what someone else knows until I ask them. That's right. And I may not know that, you know, my writing friend Jane actually has a background in um, intellectual property rights until I say, oh, you know, I'm working on this, this blog post or this piece about intellectual property rights. And so... For us, it can also teach us, you know, where our resources are and, and how the people around us are connected to the work that we're doing. And, and really creating community is what this podcast is about. It's really about coming together and sharing the work and the voices of women who are writing and women who are in the writing industry. 
you know, uh, women who are working as agents and editors and publicists to really share what we've learned because we have that common ground of being women, but beyond that, our, our knowledge stores are just endless, really. Um, and I think that that's one of the things about, you know, being a member of a union. Unions can sometimes have complicated public relations. Yes. Um, but to really think about the benefit of having resources available and having a community that's established and it has existed for a long time and is well respected, to then go to and say, help, yes. I need this, and to, to be heard and to be listened to. Um, the, the National Writers Union is a labor union. We're affiliated with the AFL-CIO, the dock workers and the car, you know, the, right. the guys and women on the line making cars. And the, maybe the basic premise is fair pay for fair work. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we, as writers, sometimes we're just happy to have something published. Yeah. Sometimes we're happy to give our work to someone to publish because we want to support them. But I think we don't often think enough about the value of our work in the marketplace. Absolutely. Whether it's a poem or a freelance article or a book. And uh, it's been very convenient for publishers mm-hmm. to, uh, for us to feel that way. I mean, we just feel lucky sometimes to get published. Yeah. But it's not very good for us. And we need to think about our work as property. It does not ruin the poem to think about it as intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And it's an important step to take in writing for, for us to feel that way. It is, and I think also for us to, to find a community that allows us to not just think about it as property, but to think about fair worth. You know, yes. what is this really worth? You know, if I've written a 90,000 word manuscript, what is that 90,000 word manuscript really worth? And, and what is my time worth as yes. a writer? And I think, you know, sometimes there's this idea that we're writers because we have to write. But just because we feel this compulsion doesn't mean that we can just give it away. You know, you don't see an attorney giving away all of their time That's for right. free. You don't see a doctor giving away all their time for free. It's great to give back to your community in those ways. But at the same time, we also have to remember as writers to be sustainable yes. and to, to, to properly give ourselves the space to write and the space to create. We also have to make that space for something coming in, something supporting and feeding and nurturing us. Yes. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And as someone who has struggled with that for some time, you know, being able to see the importance of that is really, has been a real shift for me. Yeah. To, to be able to adequately value my work and what is my time really worth? Um, many writers who even understand that, you know, a contract's important, they get a book contract and they are hesitant to ask to change anything in it. And that's an, another important step to take. If a publisher has gone to all the trouble to offer you a contract and you say, well, I'd really like to talk about this clause, they're not going to say, well, never mind then, mm-hmm. you know. They are going to work with you on it. And the writer's union will help you make those arguments and trade off things. So um, it's really important to be knowledgeable about it. And you can do it. You can negotiate all kinds of things in a contract. Yeah. So I'd love to talk with you about 
your experience having written for several decades and how how your writing has changed mm. as you have gone through time and what you have noticed has really um, grown in your work as a writer over time. When I was first writing, I was very um, kind of afraid of the writing. I was afraid if I thought about it too much, it would just stop. I wouldn't be able to write. I wrote very intuitively, and I wrote very close to the image that I've talked about. So I was really doing um, art in a way. I was doing pictures, and I wasn't able to to um, kind of pull out of the image the importance of it or why I was bothering to say it. So I think I can do that much better now. I write the image, and then I can kind of say what the value is that's coming out of that for me. So I'm able to do that in a way that I wasn't when I was first writing. I'm not afraid to go back. I'm not afraid to uh, tamper with it anymore. And I have been writing for about 40 years. So <laughs> um, I think that is the biggest change for me. I'm much more um, conscious of my writing, of the what I'm saying as I'm writing it. Mm-hmm. And that's really nice. I like that. It feels comfortable to me. Uh, I still write very intuitively. I get lost in the writing sometimes, don't really, not real aware on some real conscious level of what I'm writing. I get all done or I come back to the next day and I think, well, who wrote that? You know, <laughs> it sounds kind of nice. I think I'll keep that. <laughs> Whoever snuck in here. So I think that's really the biggest change for me. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and then I've done a lot of, I used to edit catalogs for Bemidji State University, so I did a lot of that kind of writing. And actually, the catalog writing taught me a lot about efficiency in language. Because, mm. you know, you just can't waste an inch in a catalog. They're right. already too big. Right. And they have to be absolutely accurate, or you end up in a lawsuit over something. So I learned a lot from that kind of writing, and I think it carried over into my creative writing in good ways, mm. attention mm-hmm. to what I was putting on the page. So, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, we are sitting down at AWP, which is, as far as I know, the largest writing conference I in believe so. the country and probably the Western Hemisphere. Yes. Um, and it's a different kind of conference from many writing conferences. This isn't the kind of conference where you sit down and workshop and, you know, do prompts and exercises. This is really a, a conference about you know, panel discussions and and where writing is going. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on the importance of a more typical writer's conference, you know, maybe spending a weekend or a a week uh, in a place with other writers. And you, for a time, were the head of the Minnesota Northwoods Writers' Conference, which is out of Bemidji State. And uh, you and I worked on that project together for a while. Yes. And I'd love to know what you see as the value of writing conferences and um, or if there's a value in them. Oh, I think they're marvelous. I wrote my first poem for a writing conference. Mm. I was in a literature class and the teacher recited uh, E.E. Cummings' poem that just blew me away and I thought, wow, I don't understand that poem and that's (laughs) what I want to do. And I was at Bemidji State and they had a conference in that summer and I signed up for it and I hadn't written anything. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started writing. And I think for novice writers, 
it's a safe and wonderful place. Lots of uh, helps you approach that blank page, which is just terrifying to mm -hmm. most of us. And really, once you sit down with the paper and the pencil, and that's all you've got, and yourself, I think writers' conferences are really great for that. Yeah. And uh, I think we did good work at Bemidji State at our conference. Um, a lot of teachers took our conference, mm -hmm. and I loved that they went back to their classrooms, and and that yeah. I know that some of that work showed up in their their teaching methods, and I really loved that. Um, we gave uh, we gave a, a place for writers to be safe for a few days to try things, and you talk, eat, think, dream writing. You know, yeah. at home, that's hard. People get really sick of us, actually, you know, <laughs> but it's all you want to talk, and that's all anybody wants to talk yeah. about. So it is, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. yeah. I know for myself, I have friendships and connections that I made at the Writers' Conference that I still carry with me, you know, even 10 years later. Yes, so. people have come up to me at this conference and said, I was at the Northwoods Writers Conference. Oh, wow. And uh, now I have an MFA, or now I have a book, or I won an award. And that's amazing. That's very satisfying. It's a, it's a great uh, seedbed for writers, a yeah. conference can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Susan, I'd love to give you a chance to share some of your incredible knowledge and wisdom directly with listeners. Um, let's bring them to AWP with <laughs> okay. us and have them sitting in this room. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. I'm going to be. I'm going to repeat myself a little. It, my advice and my thoughts about it are to trust yourself. Sometimes you're going to be wrong. I mean, uh, I really want to eat the chocolate chip cookie, which I happen to have one in front of me <laughs> right now. And you know, I can't just eat chocolate chip cookies, even though that's what I really want to do. So I know that I can't quite trust that impetus. And in writing, that will also be true. But I think it's better to trust yourself and try things and then decide not to use that than it is to um, kind of uh, filter yourself too soon. So you might think uh, this little image, you know, um, my niece wanted to brush my hair. She's quite small. And of course I let her. And how could that be an important thing? But a really fine poem came out of it eventually. Um, and I think if you keep coming back to something, there is something in it. And your job is not to set it aside and avoid it, but to go into it and find it. Find the thing that is being carried in that image. And it's there. If you keep coming back to it, it might take you a long time to find what's in that image. And I do it by continuing to describe through the five senses what the image is. And eventually, you know, if I, oh, this is all red, the flowers are red and the tablecloth is red, and then I might start thinking, what is red? This poem's about red, passion and danger. So that, that is how you can get through to what it is you're really trying to write about, is mm -hmm. to trust those images and to use the senses. For me, that's how I work, and I think it works for a lot of people. Yeah. Susan, it has been so great to have you on the show. I feel so blessed and so lucky that we got this time together um, to reconnect and to really share some great conversation about writing. 
If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you at susancarolkhauser.com. Correct. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you, Sarah. It's wonderful to come back and work with a student who's now a colleague. Yeah. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Want to experience Susan's teaching methods firsthand? Registration is now open for Sarah Blackthorne's 12-week intensive workshop. Visit sarahblackthorne.com for information. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with writer and derby girl Jenna McGuigan. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.